Welcome to episode nine of 514 Beltway to Bytown podcast. My name is Jeff, and with me is my longtime friend Todd. This podcast is recorded remotely, with me being in DC and Todd in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. Remember, everything we say could be fact or fiction. Tonight, uh, folks, we got a really interesting guest, uh, real eclectic background, uh, Mr. Jeffrey Drover. A longtime friend of mine and co-worker of mine as well. Uh, for those who don't know him, he goes by, primarily in our circles, he goes by Drover. Just because uh, growing up and, and in the workplace, never a shortage of people with the first name Jeff. Uh, so it works perfect for this podcast tonight. So Jeff, if you're all right with it, we'll call you Drover for the rest of the podcast. That's perfect. Perfect. So Drover, for those of you who don't know him, a really interesting background. Grew up in Newfoundland uh, in St. John's. Um, never played uh, any organized football growing up but somehow managed to uh, make his way west and find himself on the roster as a paid player in the CFL with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Uh, so uh, a real crazy adventure for him, from him to start uh, from St. John's to end up uh, playing professional football. After that, moved on to be a full-time uh, strength and conditioning coach, coach and exercise physiologist, uh, working with elite athletes and professionals looking to, to improve their performance. So really excited to have him to, here with us. So thanks, Jeff, for being with us, or Mr. Drover, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So, Drover, I mean, for those, because we have some American listeners, probably not too familiar with Newfoundland and Labrador, so one of the 10 uh, Canadian provinces, our most eastern province, right out on the Atlantic. Uh, tell us a little bit about growing up in Newfoundland, in Newfoundland. What was unique about growing up in St. John's specifically? Well, I guess the first thing, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's an island, uh, first of all. <laughs> Got about, uh, I think it's about 500,000 people on the island. And I think in, uh, in St. John's, it's just over 100K uh, uh, when I was growing up. So I lived just on the outskirts of, of St. John's, which is a small community called uh, Kilbride. Um, but it's essentially one of the, one in the same. Um, but it was a great place to live, eh? Uh, I, I had a, a father who, was a, uh, who grew up around the bay. Um, and so he grew up fishing and hunting and, uh, you know, that was a big influence for me. Um, so Drover, like you've been all over the country, right? Like both with professional sports and your job now, you've traveled all over the place, even in the States. Would you agree that, uh, certainly like the walk on Signal Hill near St. John's, it's one of the most picturesque walks in Canada or North America? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Signal Hill, um, is, is fantastic. It's, uh, it's very close to Cape Spear, which is the, the, the most easterly point in, in North America. And the, the scenery in, in, in St. John's and Newfoundland is, is fantastic. I mean, if you're a hunter and a fisherman, um, it's just, it's super. Uh, but the only thing you have to fend off is the weather. So if you can get a nice, fine, sunny day without wind, um, you're doing okay. Nice. Drover, I have a question for you. I know right. football came to you uh, later in life. So what sports did you play growing up in Newfoundland? Yeah, so that's, a, that's an interesting question um, because uh, I, I grew up, um, I was a very, very active kid. And my, at one point, my mother was just like, okay, we got to put him in some sports. And I was probably around the age of like eight or nine. And so at that point, um, I was put in everything. And I took to gymnastics. So I actually played or participated in competitive gymnastics for four years or so. Um, my culmination was uh, the Canada Games. Um, wow. 
And I think I came 55 out of 56 in the Canada game. So <laughs> Respectable. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, shortly after that, I quit. <laughs> okay. So question, Drover, if you had to do a handspring now in your 40s, could you do it? I would. I would anytime I do anything with rotation, I see stars. So I, I could probably do it, <laughs> but I'll, I'll see stars. Yeah. Okay. So no, that's... So so at the time, there was no organized football. I know now they actually have a provincial association and some teams in St. John's and Avalon and that, but back then there was no organized football on the island whatsoever. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, the only time I ever kind of saw new, uh, football was a ball in a Canadian tire, which we purchased and played around <laughs> with. Uh, and then on television, you know, we had three or four channels <laughs> back in the day. And, and uh, you know, I, when I, in high school, I would sit down on Sundays and just watch the NFL. Um, and so that was really when I kind of fell in love with the sport. And I remember just telling guys in high school, and I didn't play any uh, organized sport in high school, so you could only imagine what my friends were saying when I would say, hey, I want to play football one day, and I'm going to the University of Calgary next year, and I'm going to try to try out for the team there. So yeah. so your brother, was it your brother was at the University of Calgary? Is that what drove you there? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So my, my brother is a geologist by, uh, by, by education. And so he was, uh, I think he was doing uh, like, uh, had a summer job. And so I went there to visit him. And that was kind of my first experience to football, like real live football. And I'll never forget that experience because it was just the smashing of the heads. I don't know if, you, you know, you guys just are, are probably immune to it. But that first time when you, when you hear the helmets just kind of clash, mm -hmm um it's just that was quite the experience for me and and from that point on I think that was around 91 uh, that was my first experience with the live football and then again I just started watching it in in high school and uh you know I kind of fell in love with it okay so not comparing you to Sean Austin at all from Rudy because you're I've seen you you're, you're a lot more athletic than that but <laughs> was the response to like was the response that you got like from people in your entourage like besides like you know besides your friends in high school were your parents kind of like okay like what do you want to do? Like, listen, we got Memorial University in our backyard here. You want to fly across the country. You want to spend all the money. You want to go out for football. Like, you've never stepped on the field. Like, were there a lot of naysayers in your entourage? Like, uh, saying, like, good luck. Good luck with that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean it's, it's funny you say that and you bring that up because when I made the team uh, at the University of Calgary, one of the first articles they wrote about me was titled, you know, Newfoundland's own Rudy, which is kind of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> And so just for like people who don't know you, right? Like you're not a, uh, you know, you're not uh, six foot two. You're a, uh, you're a five ten Caucasian male, um, <laughs> right? You know, but so you know, like average by in terms of metrics, like just and we'll, yeah. we'll get to a little bit how you you performed uh, athletically on the field, short, but in just terms of visual appearance, you kind of short leg, long torso, you know. Drover, you know, we I think we skipped over a really important part of the story. You know, you went right to I made the team. I want to know when you arrived in Calgary how you even approached the coaching staff, you know, to wind up on the team. How, how did that all take place? Yeah, so I graduated high school in 1994, and my brother was doing his master's in Calgary. So I got accepted to the University of Calgary, uh, started my first year of university in 1994. And in September, I walked up <laughs> the stairs <laughs> to the coach's office, there was no email back then. You yeah. could email them, right? <laughs> no. That would have been easier, a phone call. Um, I, yeah, I just knocked on his door. And so 
if, if any of you know anything about like university football, the, the season as well, oh, well yeah. started by then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my ignorance, I'm just like, okay, knock, knock, knock. <laughs> hey, you know, can I, can I try out? And so he kind of looked at me funny and just said, you know, the season's already started. First, first thing. And then he suggested that I be an equipment manager, mm-hmm. which at that point I was like, you know, anything to kind of get my foot in the door. So I was like, yeah, sure. And I guess he must have said, must have said to himself, okay, he's, you know, he's enthusiastic at best. So let's, uh, I'll, I'll tell him about the, the uh, tryouts that they have in January. <laughs> so basically in 1995, in January, what they do every year, they just bring in, you know, they basically put out a, an open tryout and people come and they just do testing. And it's really as simple as that. And from there, they just take, you know, those folks that tested well and bring them to the spring camp. So that's what I did. I, I trained really hard from September to January, went in and I tested very well, uh, or at least well enough for them to invite me to the spring camp. Okay, so that's part of that Newfoundlander humbleness. And that's like an endearing quality of most Newfoundlanders, extremely hardworking um, smart, skilled, but motivated, but also very humble, right? So you're kind of being humble. Um, cause if you look at kind of the back, like I'll say it, because when you look at the backstory and I've seen some of the metrics that you, you kind of did, um, in some of the media pieces early on covering when you, you kind of made it onto the, the dinos team, what was the 40 yard dash time you ran? Yeah. So that year, uh, it was slow. Um, uh, but the year after it was a bit faster. But uh, I think I ran at like a nine, it was either a nine, anyway, nine, six, give or take. No, no, but for a 40 yard dash. Yeah, yeah. Was that so I, I guess for a high school guy, that was decent enough to give me a, a tryout. <clears throat> okay, so the coaches were the coaches were impressed with your, your, your 40 time and your speed. Yeah, so like overall, I think I, I tested fairly well. You know, I benched, like there was a bench test in there. And so I, I did well there. And, and there were some other tests. And I just, I mean... I, Throughout my career, I've always tested well, uh, but that there's a big difference between like testing well and then not actually catching football or running a route or knowing the game. Yeah, that's a great point that I want to get to. Obviously, you test well. You're a great athlete. How long did it take you to really understand the nuances of football? I, to this day, I still don't. I mean, Todd and I have had conversations about football and just, you know, it's just little things as a, as a receiver that I know about and I could coach, mm-hmm. but even just the f- full game, I think I, I would still say, you know, that's a lifelong learning process. You know, it's kind of like playing guitar, you know, you kind of never really know it. Um, Interesting. Did, did some of the veteran players take you under their wing, especially the receiver group? Uh, they were all really nice to me. I would say that. I, I don't know. Like at the time, um, Donnie Blair was, uh, one of our standout wide receivers, and he was running, you know, four three forties. And uh, in 1995, he was he the Heck Crichton winner, I think, in that year. Uh, and we and 95, they won the the Vanier. So he was, you know, a guy I looked up to. Um, you know, I, I tried to emulate him as best I could. He was a guy that in the gym trained very hard. He was one of the first people I ever saw do a power clean, which I think is a staple. Um, you know, exercise for, for football. Um, so I definitely looked up to him and wanted to be like Donnie Blair. <laughs> okay, so 
by the time you graduated, Jeff, you you had become an Arcadian, and yet at the time you admit, you had kind of said you didn't even know what an Arcadian meant, but you, you managed to not only crack the starting lineup but managed to excel as well. Correct? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I mean to kind of take a step back in 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 the so I, I do the testing in January, and then we get invited to a spring camp. And so you kind of got to make it through that spring camp with all the, you know, the top high school players in, in Calgary. And then I believe there was like a veteran camp as well the following weekend. So you got to kind of make it through that. And then and I'll never forget this. Is, and you guys may relate is, is basically the coaches kind of pick their team. And so um, you get whatever 80 players. And so you actually have to walk through this room. And basically if your name is up on the board, you get to kind of stay around. And then if your name is not on the board, you just keep walking out the door. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that experience for me was something that I'll never forget. It's just kind of walking in there and seeing my name up on the board and just being like, okay, here we go. Uh, so then, you know, I kind of, I go to camp in, in August and I redshirt that first year. Uh, and like you say, Todd, the following year in 96, I, you know, I run a fast four, uh, fast 40. Um, it, it was hand timed. It was a fourth, four, three, three-ish. Um, so that got people's attention. Yeah, that got people's attention such that I think uh, that first game against Saskatchewan, actually, they, they started me. <laughs> we, we <laughs> for, uh, they didn't start me the second game. Uh, but it was just <laughs> a, a learning process. I think to go back to, to what you talked about earlier, there was there was a couple things I remember about that process. The first is is going in, you know, the first time and, like, putting on a helmet, which was surprisingly heavy, wondering – like sitting across from this, uh, the equipment manager and going, okay, you know, like what gear do I need? <laughs> you know, hip pads, <laughs> tail pads. I had no idea. Um, and then it was, it was funny myself and Todd and I would joke about this, but one of my first, uh, so spring camp is obviously very cold or can be very cold in, in Calgary, very wet. And uh, I just recall, uh, I'm from Newfoundland. I don't know if you guys know what a Newfoundland fisherman knit sweater looks like, but it's a wool <laughs> yes. sweater. <laughs> I, I, I a captain highlighter i always say captain highlighter's got one of those man. <laughs> exactly so i'll never forget you know i kind of literally standing so it's piss poor raining out i'm standing on the line i i'm up next to run a route and before i run my routes because because every time i would run a route i would come back and my sleeves would be down past my hands and so i literally would be standing in line <laughs> rolling up my fisherman knit sweater and then i would run around that <laughs> of course my sweater would just cover. Oh, that's fantastic <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. So I, I had no idea i was really super green and and who was the head coach at the time for you yeah so if anybody follows uh, uh canadian university football uh peter canellan uh, very well respected had won a few championships and the dinos at that time were very um very successful team and Peter Canal was, you know, a detailed guy. Um, I, I just kind of remember folks talking about him saying, you know, like he, he's got everything pinpointed down to the seconds, you know. Yeah. So he's that type of coach. Uh, very well respected. Uh, and, and he won. And That's in 1995, fantastic. Yeah, in 1995, they won the championship. And, and what was the vibe you were getting from your brother and your family back home through this whole experience? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good question. I've got a funny story actually about my first uh, CFL football game. Sorry, sorry to jump around, mm-hmm. uh, but it is funny. So, to answer that question, I 
so my first football game was in what 2000 2000 uh, 2001 that season so I, I we're playing against toronto and it's my first game and so like cbc back home is interested so they they rounded up a bunch of people my mom actually rounded up a bunch of my friends at my house and they all sat around and you know watched the game and they filmed them and they they interviewed them and and whatnot and so that 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 night my dad was was moose hunting <laughs> in uh in in gander in, in actually glenwood so that that'll that'll tell you i mean they just they just don't really i mean my mom was a big fine fan by the end of it but because uh, she would listen to the games on the internet, um, she was a bit more savvy at that point. And at that point, there was no, you know, televised games at university level anyway. And uh, but she followed every game, and you know, my dad probably watched every game. But uh, uh, I mean, that's that's a you know, Newfoundlanders love to fish and hunt, and my dad was moose hunting on my first game. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. good times. Okay, so moving forward, um, you culminate. So you again, you finished. You, you went on. You cracked the starting lineup. How far was it? Bef- uh, how far along was it before you started to uh, stand out as a uh, one of the key players on the Dynamo? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. And and so kind of moving from 96, 97, 98. Uh, 98 is noteworthy because at that point I had quit. Uh, so I stopped playing. I, I didn't really start in ninety six or ninety seven. Uh, took a year off, and then one of the guys who was a quarterback at that time, Lincoln Blumel, uh, asked me if I wanted to go down to West Texas A&M down in Amarillo, Texas, for a tryout. And myself and and him, we we flew into uh, Utah and drove down the rest of the way, uh, and we ran a couple of routes for the the coach down there, and you know that was an experience that was kind of. I said to myself, well, you know what, like, I still kind of, I still love this game. I still think I have something to offer. And so at that point, I basically kind of walked back into the head coach's uh, office at that point, um, which had transitioned from Peter to coach, uh, coach, sorry, from coach Canella to, to coach Fasano and walked into his office and kind of said to him, Hey, can I play again this year? And so fortunately, he accepted that offer. And uh, in 99, I started playing and starting. And then in 2000, so the last two years of football, I was a starter at the University of Calgary and then finished uh, as an All-Canadian actually in, in 2000. So I had a year left. Did you, did you have aspirations to play professional football at that point? Or was that something completely yeah. not even your not even your head? Yeah, no, I think uh, at some points I was always – like I, I felt like I had the physical attributes and it was just a matter of, you know, everything else going right. And so physical attributes is just one thing. And then everything else has to kind of fall in place. I mean, you have to have a quarterback that believes in you. Um, you have to have a quarterback that's going to throw you the ball. You have to have a coaching staff that, you know, what believes in you as well. And so kind of all the pieces kind of have to fit together. And then you obviously have to play well and, and contribute. And so at some point, uh, I thought to myself that, okay, this is, this is worthwhile exploring because I have physical attributes. So even in my first year in, in 99, um, I, you know, I started the entire year and I basically went in and, 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 and did some video editing and cut and copied 
every catch into a VHS tape <laughs> and, and well, then, cool. you know, flip them to every, every team across the country and then did the same thing the following year. And what was the response? Zero. From GM Zero. League. Zero the first year. <laughs> and then in my, in my, in, so in 2000, I received a call, I guess, from uh, Taman, who was a GM at Winnipeg. And so they offered me a minimum salary uh, opportunity, and I, I jumped at it and uh, went out there, I think, in uh, May-June time frame. Yeah, good, good experience. Pretty what, was it like, what was it like, Drover, competing against the American receivers that were brought in? That's a good question too. I, you know, I, I just, I guess ignorance is bliss. I guess I'd say that first of all. Yeah. Um, so just to add the context for the American listeners, those who don't know the roster, and I still believe the rules in place, 51% of the players have to be Canadian, right? So it, it's a bit of a numbers game, right? Like depending on what nationality you are, like, you know, if you're going to make the team or not, like, it, you know, certainly it, it could play your dear advantage or disadvantage depending on what position you're playing, I imagine. Yeah, there's definitely the politics of that that, that come into play. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're, you're really competing against the Canadian players. But again, I didn't really realize that. Yeah. I mean, I was just going there to to try to contribute, do the best I could possibly do, and, and hopefully end up on the, the roster at the end of it. Um, but we had some, you know, really, you know, over the years, you know, you have some, some guys that come in that are, you know, first-round draft picks um, that, you know, didn't make it in the NFL and, mm-hmm. and come up to the Canadian Football League and – you know, so it was interesting. Okay. Um, so who was your first coach, your head coach? With it the was uh, Dave Ritchie. Wow. Ritchie. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Hard-nosed guy. <laughs> Former Alouette's <Yeah>. coach. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> What's his famous, his famous quote one time when a reporter in Montreal asked him, do you have to be, a, do you have to be intelligent to be a football coach? He goes, no, you got to be <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he's awesome. So one of the quotes I, he used to say all the time, and I used to love it, is, is uh, if you're going to stay out all night with the owls, you better be prepared to soar with the eagles in the morning. I love it. I love it. <laughs> now, you, you talked about signing a minimum salary contract. You know, I'm in the States. Most of my friends uh, are familiar with the NFL, and guys do not have off-season jobs or, or even a need to. What was the off-season like for you as a player in Winnipeg? Yeah, so for me – um, I mean, my minimum salary was, you know, 30 K I think at the time, give or take. And actually my first year as a red, as a, as a practice roster guy, I think I was making $500 a week. Wow. And so, you know, down the States, if you're an NFL guy, you're making, at that point I, I heard that, you know, you're making 80, 80 K plus. And so here, I'm just happy to be on the team. So $500 a week, just enough to kind of cover rent and some food during the, during the week was good to go. What did your off season look like back yeah. then, Drover? Like, were you looking for other job opportunities, or yeah. was it full time football? Yeah, no, for endeavor? sure. I was I was lucky enough to be able to go back to my my parents' house to live with my parents, and I had a uh, I had a, a gig at the um, yeah, like I worked a, f- a few hours at uh, at one of the gyms there. So, so you were an exercise science or kinesiology? Uh, major? I was. I was a biomechanics, bachelor of science major. Okay, we're going to get to a few of the players and uh, coaches that you've had 
uh, over your career. But before that, we're going to take a quick pause. Um, so, folks, just a quick reminder. Uh, certainly, Jeff and I do this podcast not for uh, any financial endeavor. Uh, <laughs> we're not, not going to be Joe Rogan or Bill Simmons anytime soon. But just kindly ask, if you like the podcast and, you know, you make it part of your week or part of your routine at all, uh, just show us some love either on Spotify or, you know, just share our uh, posts on social media and Facebook if you see them. Uh, it just helps get the word out and, uh, you know, more people can find out about the podcast and listen in. Okay, so, Drover, you played with a number of great um, CFL players. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few names for you. I want you to give me some... Uh, some characteristics or giving me a, a brief description on them. So now head coach of the Montreal Alouettes, but then your quarterback at the time, Kerry Jones. Okay. So yeah, you know, Kerry was a, just a great guy. Um, and I mean, he's obviously excelling, you know, loves the game of football is, is excelling very much. So um, as a, as a coach of the, of the Alouettes, um, you know, the, the thing I, I remember most about Kahari is just, his ability, you know, to see cover zero and throw it up to Milt Stiegel and for them to just score touchdowns. <laughs> At the time, could you see leadership characteristics in him? Did you see a potential coach in him when he was when you were playing with him? Well, I think any quarterback who has to lead, you know, a group of guys um, has leadership qualities. Um, he was certainly very likable, very patient, um, very respectful, hard worker. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not surprised that he's – He's doing a very good job in, in that space. Okay. Next, the very stylish and opinionated, opinionated and you mentioned him, Milt Stiegel. <laughs> so Milt is just a funny guy. Um, you know, he's, he's a very, I guess one of the things I just really appreciated about Milt is just, he's just he was just a grinder. Uh, and he, he very seldom took plays off, very seldom took practices off. He came in and you know, just ran every route he could during practice. And, you know, that's what I remember most about him. And obviously he's just a superstar, you know, just super fast and just would just catch touchdowns. <laughs> yeah. the, the elusive Charles Roberts. <laughs> Charlie Roberts. Uh, blink. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, when we sit down and, and film and just watch uh, Charles, you know, do his thing, you know, watching game film with him uh, was just fantastic. You know, I don't know how many times during, you know, we sit down the next day and just have the ooh, <laughs> you know, like, and just you know that that when it when a DB just kind of like takes a four or five steps to the right left and then just falls on his behind. You know, he's done just he's done a number of those. <laughs> so uh, yeah, he's great to watch. And you meant we talked about him briefly before the Zen master, Dave Ritchie. Yeah, for sure. So he's, you know, a guy that's been around for a long time and just a tough guy with a chip on his shoulders, how, how I would describe him, but he's, he's really got a heart of gold and just a very caring guy. And, and you know, all the players used to love playing for him. Yeah. It definitely seemed like a player's coach. Yeah. All right, Joe, I'm going to ask you a question. You, you know, you don't have to give me a name if you don't feel comfortable, but was there any, Big name U.S. guy, you know, a potential high NFL draft pick that came in and was just a complete bust. Oh, God. Yeah, there was. And there always, yeah, there was. There was probably a couple. Um, 
and just, you know, the game is different and in, in some respects. And so the transition, you know, for a lot of reasons, um, just isn't the same. I mean, guys that come out of, you know, division one schools that are used to playing in front of, you know, hundred thousand people, you know, that alone is probably like, just, you know, plays, plays with your, your head. Mm-hmm. There, there was a few guys that came up that, you know, were first round draft picks or very highly touted and well, and, and, you know, part of that is just timing, you know, the right place, right time. Uh, you know, if you're a quarterback coming in and Kahari's starting quarterback, okay. you know, it's really hard to kind of, you know, um, you know, push him off the, his pedestal, so to speak. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, that happened. A, a lot of guys come up and do very well, though, too. So it's, it's, right. uh, it's an adaptation to the game for sure. I mean, the quarterbacks, when you, you – just the field alone, trying to hit the fly and die um, is a far <laughs> throw. <laughs> you know, the ball's up there for minutes before it ends up in the the wide receiver's hands. So. Well, just the width of the field, right? You have to throw the ball. The quarterback has to throw the ball 30, you know, 30 yards on a rope for a three-yard game. <laughs> like, like, like an out pattern. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, what about right. adapting to the, just the, the physical realities, right? Like nothing against Polo Park. Like, you know, like I, you know, like, I like that, that, you know, like the stadium in Winnipeg, you know, probably at the time was probably a lot of fun. But like, you know, just coming, you know, some of these, NCAA athletes have probably played like in front of a hundred thousand people and suddenly they're in Winnipeg where, you know, it may not be the, the biggest show in town. Uh, you know, you might have to drive 30 kilometers at night to go to some spaghetti dinner at a kinsman club. Right. <laughs> right. Because you want the free meal and maybe a gift certificate right, for some public speaking engagement. Yeah. You told me about a time uh, where you had an experience at a, a fundraiser for the blue bombers. Do you want to, do you want to talk about it when you were like table number 32? <laughs> well, I was always table number thirty-two. That's for sure. <laughs> but uh, but I do recall like just you know walking <laughs> walking in. We used to go to this one place all the time, and it was after a game, and I kind of come in, I'm limping limping in, and I come up, and I you know there's a, there's a restaurant side, and there's a bar side, and I, there's a there's a girl standing like a hostess standing at the front, and she's like, oh, there's a there's a private party going on here right now, and I look up and I see everybody in there, I'm like. Uh, what's the private party? She's like, oh, the bombers are here. So I'm like, oh god. So anyway, I just, I just kind of stuck in around the back because I, I used to go there all the time, so I didn't even bother going through, going through the front entrance. I'm not sure if that's the story you were talking about. The, the one where people had paid the, they paid the, the, the eat with a, a bombers player. <laughs> yeah. And then they ask you where, where, where when's the player showing up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that probably happened too. I mean, we forgot, we forgot the time. Okay, so at some point, like again, you had a, a four-year career, three, four-year career. Yeah, so two thousand one to two thousand four. Okay, so how did your career end? Was it so actually I? It was interesting. I had played receiver for the first three years, and then they moved me to the opposite side of the ball. Um, and so I played safety my last year, which was re- a really great experience, and uh, super happy to have seen that side of the ball and learn more about that uh, defense. Um, but yeah, so I, my career ended that year in 2004, I had, uh, you know, just, I had a a bad ankle and had a couple of scopes, one scope at the end of the year in November, right after the season and another scope in March timeframe. And just by January or sorry, by June of the next year, I wasn't really ready to go. So, um, I just decided to uh, take a job up North, 
um, in Northwest Territories as a recreation programmer and just move on with, with my life. I think I was, what, 28 at that time. So after, like I said, you also had, you had mentioned to me at some point, you also dabbled a little bit with bobsledding. Do you want to talk about that at all? Or? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've got, I got some funny stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now the American, the American listeners just are on the edge of their seat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so bobsledding, for those of you who don't know anything about bobsledding, it's like, it's an, an insane sport. It may just look like you're sledding down the hill. But, uh, and again, ignorance is bliss. And, you know, you're, when you go down, so first of all, at the, in Calgary, there's uh, the Canada Olympic Park. And so they, they have the 88 track there. So very easy to just kind of walk um, right, a five minute drive and you're, you're at that park. So I was lucky enough to have a guy called Chief, who was a driver at the time looking for, for sled pushers. And so I was going to be one of them. Actually, the, the Chief is, uh, Taylor Hall, uh, who played for, um, uh, I think he's probably uh, number one NHL draft pick. Anyway, yeah, the hockey player, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So that was his father at the time. Wow. So, uh, so Chief uh, was our driver, and the first time down. So I'll tell you a couple stories because they're hilarious. So the first is uh, the first time down. So basically, the first time down, you're going 122 kilometers an hour. There's there's some really tight turns and if you don't know where the turns are and your head is down, basically the sled just kind of, you know, you don't know where the, when, where, when the sled is coming back and forth. So it just basically hits you in the head. So, so chief was like, Jeff, just keep your head down. So I'm like, okay. So I keep my head down and the first couple of turns are easy enough because the, the sled is just kind of gently moving around you, but then it starts getting really violent. And uh, so by the end of the, 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 <laughs> the first run, I I was basically I had a ringing in my ear for the next week. Uh, I was concussed, obviously. Uh, and then that first ride too, I had. Uh, so there's four of us in the sled. So it was our first run down. Another guy was a football player, uh, Sean Sexton. He's a lawyer in in Alberta right now. So he he had a, like a, a loose shirt on, and so I'm the brakeman. I'm the last guy in the sled. So at the end of the ride, basically when you finish the finish line, everybody turns around and says you know, pull, pull, pull. And so you, you break, right? So I start breaking and one of the, there's two breaks. And so basically you have these two kind of levers. Uh, and then, um, so I, I was able to pull up on two of them, but one of them got stuck in my shirt. So basically what, what happened is <laughs> the sled started pounding off the sides of the, all the way up, right off the end of the, the track. And so if you know anything about bobsleigh, the, the the runners they just like the drivers baby them they're wrapped up in like this silk cloth and they're shined because they obviously want to go really fast and this is the thing that touches the ice and so for it to go up off the track uh, to the concrete or whatever it was at the end he just gets out like what the like in that moment you dashed your olympic hopes or what like, uh... <laughs> yeah, pretty much and then another fantastic story I have too is uh, uh, again for all those American listeners who who are dying to know about bobsleigh. So so the G forces are insane. So as you go around some of those turns, you know you can barely keep yourself up. So 
um, one of the last times I ever went down, there was, so again, I'm the fourth guy and the third guy. So there's this lip on the side of the sled. And so as a third guy, what you do is you kind of put your, your outside leg on the, uh, on the lip and then you just jump in. So he ends up slipping <laughs> at the start. And so basically you have to picture this is the bobsled going down, you know, the first 10 meters and he's kind of hanging on to the sled. Uh, <laughs> it, it just hangs on there for a little while until he just decides to let go. Oh. And so he lets go and there's only three of us in the four-man sled. And that means there's a space between myself and the, and the, the second guy. And so the driver has like a pad in front of him. So he's able to kind of keep upright. But for me, I didn't have anybody in front of me. So I literally was like, my lips were touching the bottom of the sled for the entire. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, like, like I really like during my career, I I did try stuff like that because I, I wanted to compete and I, you know, I thought it was important to compete. And, and, you know, I also ran track you know, multi-sport, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of participating in multi-sport. And, you know, when I was running track in university, I remember the coach being like, you know, you can't do that. And it was one of those things so, was like, you know, there has to be a way for, for coaches to kind of support those athletes that want to do both. Cause I think it's beneficial. Um, well, you look at like, a, like players in the NFL, like Christian McCaffrey comes to mind, right? He played multiple sports. He did track, he did basketball, he did baseball, he did football, like in high school. Mm-hmm. And and kind of leads into my next like your your next career progression, right? So you you have an exercise science background from university. Mm-hmm. You're a certified exercise physiologist, which you did kind of after after you'd retired from the CFL. Mm-hmm. You're a certified strength and conditioning specialist. As a professional who works with like you know like elite athletes or you know like or, or clients, how important would you say it is to parents for kids who want to kind of excel at sports to do multiple sports and not specialize? So I guess really, um, I mean, it's hard to say, I think for me, like Mike, I have two boys and I will definitely be asking them to participate in all kinds of sport, um, for all kinds of reasons. I think just understanding play, um, being able, being able to develop in, in different ways, you know, different movements. I mean, I was, I was a gymnast, you know, what kind of transition from gymnastics to football is there? There's like zero. There's, nobody could connect the dots between, uh, between, you know, gymnastics and football. Um, but I, like, I was always playing. I was, you know, it was tennis or out on the street, you know, playing football or, or softball or, or whatever. So I think it's extremely important and you know, I'm I'm still in the in 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 the like I've, I've been a manager for the last ten years, so I'm not, um, you know, the, um, a practitioner like I used to be. But I still on LinkedIn, I still see articles from from folks that just encourage young kids to participate um, in various sports. And I think the main thing is just, you know, kids have to really love the thing that they're doing, and. Uh, I agreed. agreed. Play and That's a great answer. Fun. Yeah. Drover, I'm going to follow up. You did say you have two sons. Knowing what you know now about CTE and football, would you encourage them to be football players? <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. No, that's a, that's a horrible answer. You know, I, I certainly I would be a bit hesitant. I think for me, I was really lucky. I didn't go through a high school system 
And I didn't, you know, I, I hear stories about guys playing, you know, doing these drills. And I just didn't, I was lucky enough to not have to do those, I think. Right. I, you know, I jumped right in at the university level and there wasn't a lot of hitting. And even at the, you know, in the CFL, there wasn't hardly any either. Um, so I think there's a way you can practice without, you know, just helmet to helmet. And so yeah. if, if there's, you know, if I had my kid playing and there was a coach that just didn't understand that, then I'd, I'd be a little mm-hmm. bit hesitant. If there, so, if there were some good coaches that were coaching appropriately, then I wouldn't have any issues. Yeah. Cause I think there's, there's so much to be learned from the game. I, you know, I attribute a lot of my career success to the game of football, you know, how I interact with people at work and how I, you know, lead, lead my team and, um, you know, there's a lot of great attributes that you, you learn from football, how to get along with others. You know, you have 80 guys on a football team from all different walks of life and you all have to work together to achieve one common goal. So, um, yeah, I think you just have to be careful, have good coaches that are, that are educated and, and, and coach well. Yeah, great answer. So follow up question for parents who may be listening or if we have any young athletes listening to this podcast. Um, if it's say someone in their teens, you have a young athlete who wants to get bigger, stronger, faster, regardless of their sport. What key five or six exercises or types of training do you think they should be doing? What do you think are the bare bones? What do you? What do people need? What athletes need to kind of excel? So what I would say from that perspective is, I was like I'll speak from experience. Like I was really fortunate when I first came in to University of Calgary to have a couple of strength coaches you know, guide me through that process. So the first thing I would say to people is, you know, get a strength coach. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to, to have a guy named uh, Stu McMillan, who was actually the strength coach for Andre DeGrasse. And, you know, he, he didn't charge anything from me. He was, he was a young kind of up and comer at the time and kind of took me under his wing. And I was just, from that perspective, I was coached. Uh, very, very well. Um, so f- what I would tell kids is, you know, find a strength coach that's good. Um, and then, you know, in terms of, again, I'll, I'll just go reflect back on my experiences. That first year, I really built a good base of strength. Um, and I developed that over the years into, you know, more advanced lifts. But I would say the core core lifts for any, um, for any young athlete is just, you know, get your squat right. Um, squat and or deadlift. I mean, I didn't deadlift a lot, but I squatted a lot. Uh, Romanian deadlift is another lift that, you know, folks need to learn how to do because you need to know how to hip uh, hip hinge. The drop squat um, is something you need to, need, need to learn how to do. And then lunging. And I think those for me are kind of your core, some of the core lifts that you would you would have. I think... I think Drover, you're of the age. You're a few years years younger than my Jeff and myself. I think you're probably the first generation who actually saw, at least in Canada, um, like a professional strength coach, like in an academic setting like with the teams. Because I think like when Jeff and I were playing like in high school, we were doing bodybuilding just because we yeah. didn't have, there was no knowledge, right? Like there was no transfer of knowledge on kind of what strength and conditioning is, what the Olympic lifts were. Like for the most part, just out of absence of knowing anything else, we were doing pure old school bodybuilding, mm-hmm. which probably wasn't the worst thing for us, but it certainly 
probably didn't go as far as it could in terms of maximizing performance. So it's kind of interesting to see kind of for sure. I'm not, your answer. Yeah, no, I I've got guys that work with me, and I and one guy is a super athlete, and I just remember him telling me, you know, there was one thing that I wished I had when I was growing up. See, he's a like he's an world class athlete, and he was just like, I just wish I had, you know, a strength coach, um, because I think it's important. You know, you you need to be able to train for the sport that you're playing. And, um, yeah, I just agree. I think it's, it's, it's extremely sure. important, yeah. So just for your situation, learners, Jeff and I basically had a guy called Mario who had, like, a boat neck sweatshirt, <laughs> was tanned, like, blonde hair, basically give us a program, 20 sets of chest, 20 sets of back, like, you know, <laughs> maybe, like, leg extensions, maybe a couple sets of leg extensions, like, yeah. you know, arm, biceps, and triceps. Yeah, my, my experience is very, very similar. In, in my first year, that's exactly what it looked like. And I, and I think that was good, right? I, I, I do think that has a place in that first year, but then I think you have to transition. You know, if you don't have a guy who doesn't know how to – kind of transit trans transition the strength to to something more athletic then yeah i think you have problems i for me i was lucky because i Stu took me under uh, his wing my my second year and just i trained with him for throughout the entire time and um yeah it was good so thinking of early on like in your on your road uh to working in strength and conditioning drover um you were Fortunate or unfortunate enough, depending on how you look at it there, you participated in a, in a CrossFit training seminar with actually with the founder, Coach Glassman, early 2000s. Do you, remember, do you recall anything? you want to share any thoughts on kind of your first experience with, with Coach Glassman and maybe give us your overall thoughts on CrossFit yeah. as, a, as like a training modality? Yeah. So first of all, I'd say that Coach Glassman is, is a very, very smart man. Um, he's done a lot uh, in that world. And, you know, back in 2006, which is when I first took that course, um, I had no idea what CrossFit was, uh, nor did I know what it was going to turn into. But I do recall a couple stories from that, from that activity or that training. Uh, the first, and again, coming from a, having, having a gymnastics background, just kind of watching this all unfold, um, I, I just, to me, it just rubbed me the wrong way. Um, but one of the examples is just, uh, I'm not sure if they just did this as part of their thing, but basically they picked the biggest guy in the room, uh, and they just asked that person, Hey, do a muscle up. And so if you know anything about a muscle up, like you, ha you have to know what a false grip is. So if you don't know what a false grip is, I mean, you just, there's no, there's no amount of strength that will, you know, allow you to get back up on top of those rings. And so that's one of the things that they would, they would do. So basically they say, okay, come up and do a muscle up. And then the guy, you know, wouldn't be able to do it. And then um, they have a couple people on their team that um, one little small little um, like petite, like five foot. Some ringers, some ringers with the gymnastics. And then everybody's like, Oh, ooh. so um, that was one example. Another example is they, again, they pick somebody from the audience and they asked them to do uh, overhead squat. And so again, like it's pretty easy. Just pick out the, the most muscle bound guy and ask him to do an overhead squat, but overhead squat is very technical skill. And so again, it's very easy to make somebody look, look like they don't know what they're doing. If you ask them to do an overhead squat, if they've never done one before um, or if they haven't practiced it, I mean, it's a, it's a skilled activity. And so again, so they, they make that person, you know, fail after three or four because they don't have the mobility and, or strength in their shoulders uh, in, in that range of motion. And then the other 
Coach Klassman's team just kind of, you know, does 20 of them or whatever. So and it was like, ooh, <laughs> ah. And then the last thing that I, I recall from that training was was somebody asked a question <laughs> in the audience, and Coach Glassman says, There's no such thing as a stupid question, but you're boring on it. <laughs> so antics like it, you know, everybody appreciated the 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 course. It was very well received. And I think um, you know, they've done a lot of great things. Uh, I just, for me, when I first started out in 95, like Donnie Blair was the first person I ever saw do a clean. And for me, that's a staple. Um, you know, once, you know, those lists that I talked to you earlier about, once you have those down, I think, you know, moving into your, your clean will be a pretty smooth transition. And, uh, you know, now everybody, you know, has that capability. And I think that makes bigger, better, stronger athletes. Just stuff. my opinion anyway. Good stuff. No, you see, like I said, at the coal face from the beginning. Yeah. So to transition, Drover, to uh, something a little bit lighter subject matter. <laughs> you, apparently, you're a big fan of uh, Survivor, which just wrapped up, uh, I think it's 40th season. <laughs> All-star season, Survivor, Winners at War. Thoughts? What's your, what's your uh, initial impressions? Okay, so, uh, yeah, I've been a big fan for a really long time. I think the first season was probably in 99 or 2000. Um, and I remember watching it with uh, with one of my friends back in the day. But I still watch it pretty religiously uh, to today. But um, it was good. I mean, uh, anytime you get the, the – basically what they did is they had 20 winners from the past 20 years uh, in Fiji. So uh, they brought back – Exile Island. Um, so basically, if you get voted out, you go to this this island for the remainder of the of the season this year, anyway. So there was one girl on there, Natalie, who spent I think it was 30, 33 days on the on the island there. So and when you go to Exile Island, you don't have shelter. It's like it's not it's not, not it's not a place you want to be. Um, yeah, so no, it, it was good. Uh, Tony Tony was a cop from where is he from? Anyway. Jersey, Jersey, there you go. Jersey, Jersey Shaw. <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Biceps. Yeah. So he's the winner. He's good. He's he's funny. So, he's uh he's uh you know, he had everybody laughing at the at the end there. He would basically, you know, in the seasons that he's participated in, he finds a place next to the the watering uh, the well and he hides <laughs> and he just listens in, try to get intel, make sure he knows what's happening. So knowing the outcome, so spoiler alert, Tony wins the whole thing. Um, you've watched it from the beginning, right? So back to that first season in 2000. Is Tony the best competitor of all time? It was funny. And, and so he, I just was reading an article the other day on him and, and he's, he basically said it's hard to kind of, um, to assess, you know, the best player of all time. And I, I think for me, there's, there's, you got Sandra, you got Sandra, so the repeat yeah. winner, right? You got yeah. Boston Rob, and love! <laughs> yeah. you, got, you got Hatch, right? Tax evasion, full, full frontal nudity. Like, you know, singing the lavish Broadway songs to the camera as he votes yeah. people out, right? So you got an eclectic Natalie, like you said, right? Eclectic yeah. mix. So it's kind of yeah, tough. Like, but do we, give Tony, do we give Tony that crown? I don't know. For the me, there's, there's so many variables that uh, I guess for me, I would, I, would, I would look at the number of days played which I think is Boston Rob and um, Parvati, and I would give them a lot of kudos. I would think 
I, like for me, if you're winning immunity challenges and immunity, uh, sorry, if you're willing, winning the challenges and the immunity uh, wins, then, then, you know, you're, you're a good player, but, and that was Boston Rob. Uh, but again, he's got the most days. And so obviously he's going to have an opportunity to win most of the challenges and the wins. Um, and then for me at Tony, Tony, I think he's won twice. So I think Sanders won twice as well. But again, in prep for this, I was reading uh, something where, where Sandra, I guess, you know, she has the most sit outs <laughs> in the challenges. And so for me, I know, but again, that's a skill in itself, right? Because she doesn't have the physical attributes that a Boston Robber or a Biceps right. Tony will have there. So, you know, for her to, to win, like it's... Right, it's but see, that just bothers me. I can't stand that somebody... I mean, there's more to the game than just the challenges, and that and that's I still haven't gotten over that yet um, because relationships matter, and and that's how people, you know, make it to the end. Um, but but for me, I just, I, I'm, a, I'm always a fan of the nice guy who, who, who nice guy or girl who's winning challenges. Good. St no, agreed. Agreed. Challenges is going to get to you to the end, right? Yeah. And immunity. So on, we wanted to finish up. We've been typically what we've been doing with these podcasts is we finish with a top five list. So, so for you, we've picked best top five uh, reality shows of all time. So for a reality show, it's got to be like either like, you know, like a, uh, a predetermined setup with a reality, like we said, with a, with a, you know, like with a cast and, and no, and no script, or it could be a talk show. Okay. So we're each going to go down our list and we'll ask you, Drover, to start top five reality okay. shows of all time. So go. for me, I really like Survivor. Uh, I did watch Apprentice quite a bit as well. I still right now am a fan of Shark Tank. And uh, and just for, you know, giggles, we got Phil Donahue and Jerry Springer talking. Yeah. <laughs> Hey man, <laughs> solid. There's, there's nothing like civil rights activists clashing with KKK members on a on a Phil Donahue stage, man. That's uh, that's some classic television. Man. Yeah. What, 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 what do you guys have? So in that order, Survivor, Survivors. You know, yeah, I would one? say. That, I mean, for me. Yeah. Okay. No, it's good. I got a few of those too. Jeff. All right, I'm gonna go. Uh... With the reality show that started it all was Real World on MTV. I know we oh, all grew, vintage, we all grew okay. up in Canada, but whenever I was in the U.S., I was able to catch it, and uh, that was a great reality show. My number four is Survivor. I thought it brought reality to adults, and it brought strategy and winning into the mix. I loved it. Shark Tank Current, I love it. I could watch it anytime. House Hunters International, I can always dream. <laughs> and then the number one, <laughs> the number one, Cops. You can throw Gosh. cops on anytime, and it's reality TV. It's fantastic. Okay, so what's the what's the best backdrop you've seen for a cops episode? I mean, I I I guess I'll say anywhere in the South, probably Atlanta, you know, Dallas, any of any of those places. Texas is always a win. I was a drover. I was in Oklahoma City with our friend James Follett, actually doing related to some of the work we were yeah. doing together there, right? So we we're down in so we go into a place, into a gas station. We're lost, we're trying to look for directions. We're telling the local military guys like the next day we went there. He's like, you know, man, that's where they filmed last season of Cops. Like, good. All right, let's hear yours, Todd. Okay, so uh, I got to go with the Harpo Productions, man. Oprah, Doctor Phil, just because it's like how more psychologically attuned and self-actualized are people today because of watching that stuff? Like, really, Doctor Phil, like the person's fat, you got to stop eating. Okay? <laughs> Person's anorexic, you gotta start eating. <laughs> like classic man. Like, the, you can't the, you can't you can't write that stuff. Number four, ultimate fighter. 
I know it's old and it's repetitive, <laughs> but something about putting a bunch of guys with Southern Comfort in a condo who are all going to fight at some point, like, and just see kind of what's going to happen. And they just did interesting stuff. Like at the end, they had like uh, Australia versus US, right? Like, like that's going to drive itself. It's produced all the fighters that we know: Nate Diaz, Michael Bisping, Tony Ferguson. Like, it's, it's just a good, just a good entertainment, right? Like, uh, uh, number three, Gordon Ramsay. Any of the stuff. So, Kitchen yeah. Nightmares uh, is good. Like, nothing like him crapping on like you know some restaurant owner in the Midwest. Like, his chicken's not cooked. Like, you know, <laughs> which you know, like Bar Rescue is in the same vein. Is pretty good. Oh, too. Bar Rescue. <laughs> uh, Pawn Stars, educational. Okay, so if you get rid of the old man and Chumley, okay, yes, they're annoying. The narratives, although scripted, are entertaining, right? You got Rick Harrison. He's, you know, he's, he always knows a subject matter expert about either Confederate gold coins or a Gomer, Gomer Pyle doll. Like, you find some the right guy who comes in with, with all the details, right? So you learn kind of as you're watching. And number one, I hate to say it, man, like, and, and I, you know, obviously not a big fan of uh, U.S. president. Sorry, U.S. listeners there, but um, The Apprentice. And, you know, it's... Uh, it's produced by the same guys that did the uh, did Survivor, right? So, but just the the it was interesting, like particularly the, the Celebrity Apprentice. Like you got Gary Busey fighting with Meatloaf because you know like Gary, <laughs> Busey stole his crayons. Like it's <laughs> Meatloaf goes off. Like it's uh, it's just entertaining, man. You just get to see the like these these B celebrities in a different light and kind of under pressure trying to do Project Dennis Rodman. Like uh, good television. Dennis Rodman, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good television. Yeah. yeah, the former Illinois governor there that uh, just got let off there. Like he was, he was a competitor as well. So, good TV. All right, this was fun, Drover. Yeah. I think we're gonna have to have you back. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. All right, yeah, take care, guys. Have a good night. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Bunsman, hope. Cheers.